Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And I'm going to read the King James Version, and I'm going to read the New Living Translation. And uh, just a little heads up, I'm going to be switching back and forth between them tonight. But it just says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The NLT says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And so for just a few minutes, I want to minister on the thought, a little more mind renewal, a little more mind renewal. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray right now over what's about to be shared here tonight. And I just pray, Lord God, that all that is said would be for the glory of your great name. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open our hearts, open our understanding. Grant us revelation, Lord Jesus, that we may be able to leave here, God, with a, a little bit of a different thought process, Lord. And I just pray in Jesus' name, Lord God, as we go forth, as we uh, go into uh, this week, the rest of this week, that you would just continue to do your perfect work in us. For you are the author and finisher of our faith. Praise God. Praise God. You can be seated. Hallelujah. There was an elderly lady at Antioch Apostolic Church. Brother, Press, Brother Chester Wright's church in the state of Maryland, who was, she was very kind and friendly. She was one of those people that always had a smile for you when you greeted her at church, and a hug that made you feel accepted and loved. Children liked her too, because in addition to the smiles and hugs, she always had a small stash of hard candy in her purse that rewarded even the shyest children to come give her a hug and say hello at church again and again, service after service. She loved the Lord, she loved people, and she loved her church. One day during service, Brother Wright requested that we pray for this precious lady. He had called her to the front of the church, and with his hand on her shoulder, he told the church that the previous evening, her house had burned to the ground. And there was a collective intake of breath from the church people in the audience. As Brother Wright shared some of the details, people were heartbroken for her. Some were looking toward the front with pained expressions, and some were speaking the name of Jesus quietly as the story unfolded. It was a sad and tragic situation. And then Brother Wright shared something that was quite unexpected. He said that as firefighters attempted to control the fire, this precious sister stood staring at the destruction, watching her house burn brightly in the night sky. He then said that at that moment, with all her earthly belongings and memories in flames, someone standing next to her overheard her 
as she said, thank you, Jesus. So then as the church looked at this lady standing up front, she began emphatically to say it again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Resulting in prayer and praise erupting in the room. Demonstrating to all who were there a completely different mindset toward her personal tragedy than what one would expect. She had the opportunity to see the measure of her own trust in the Lord. She had the opportunity to find out if the first thing out of her mouth was faith or fear. It was obvious that in this instance, she didn't blow it. She merely spoke something that was already on the inside. She was thinking differently. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, of course, amazing. Here he delivers a, a monologue of teaching. He covers a wide range of things. And, and for those hearing all this for the first time, some of it was just radical. He begins with some, some nuggets that maybe weren't such leaps of logic. So, for example, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I can see people in the audience, you know, kind of nodding, right? They, they, they feel, they, they get that. that. That makes sense. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's quite a, an inheritance, but yeah, you know, blessed are the meek, you know. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Oh, man, that, that makes sense, you know. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Okay, maybe that's a bit much for the children, but okay, that's, that's good. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think at this point, they were, they were on board. They, they were listening, and they were accepting of what they were hearing at this point. I know I would. I mean, that seems pretty good. But then he gets to, to some game-changing stuff. Verse 21, chapter 5, he says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to the judgment, to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Well, this is pretty heavy stuff. I mean, but, but it just gets heavier. Like, you know, you know, where I, as we go through, you know this. Verse 38, and you've heard the law that says that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And everyone is nodding along. And one guy nudged his neighbor and pointed to his missing tooth knowingly said, that happened to me. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. 
If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away those who want to borrow. Wait, what? Can you imagine the mind-blowing emojis that are going on right here? One guy looked at his friend and whispered, I was just sued last week and lost my shirt. My coat is all I have left. Maybe. You have heard the law, continuing on, that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In fact, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust alike. And if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. This teaching was just epic. The sermon goes on, and, and Jesus just keeps dropping these mind bombs. Talking about not judging others lest you be judged. And what to do when you pray, when you fast, and when you give. And at the end of the sermon, Jesus just drops this hammer. In verse 26, he says, But anyone who hears my, pre my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds a house on a sand. If you hear and do what I'm saying, you are wise, but if you don't, you are foolish. What is happening here? I mean, if this was your first time hearing Jesus, I mean, you've gotta be just like, this is, this is just, I don't know what to say. At the end of the sermon, the Bible says people were astonished at his doctrine. You don't say. Astonished is probably putting it mildly. Anyway, back to my question, what was happening here? I'll tell you what was happening. For those who would accept it, it was a bit of transformation by the renewing of the mind. He was changing how they thought about those issues. These people have been doing things a certain way for generations. See, sometimes when we read the scriptures, we think, oh, I'm reading what I need to do. And that's true to some extent. However, so much of the teaching of the Bible is to show us how to think. All of our actions of obedience to the words of Scripture starts in the mind. So Paul, he tries to communicate this to the Philippians when he writes, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you. In Brother John's message on Sunday, he described the exchange between Adam, Eve, and God after they sewed on the fig leaves. Who told you that you were naked? 
Here was a change in Adam and Eve's thinking in the wrong direction after sin. And so when we talk about let this mind be in you, we're talking about a change in the way that we think. You say, well, John, I, I mean, I think I get that. You know, I, I, I follow that. I, I think I understand what it means to, you know, think differently. As one of my Bible school instructors was fond of saying, let's put this in shoe leather. I thought about that sometimes, put it in shoe leather. I think he meant like, you know, put shoes on it and let it walk or something, you know. That, seems, that seemed, seemed to make sense to me. So one of the areas that require the most significant change in thinking is the management, the managing, and the growing of money. It is a well-established fact that it's easy not to have very much money. What can be challenging to many people is changing the way they think about how money works so that they can keep more of it. And it's not an easy thing to change the way you think about money. Most people think the best way to have money is to start with a lot of it. But what's crazy is, when a person suddenly has an extra $75,000, if they haven't already thought about the best way to position those funds, they will likely blow through it in no time. When the big money personalities talk about money, they aren't just providing information. They are compelling their listeners to change the way they think if they want to be successful with money. They sometimes use harsh words to shake people up. And they rightly explain that if they want to be successful financially, they will have to change the way they think. I use this money example because it can be quite hard to execute right thinking when it comes to money. Like, like one of the hardest things for some people to go to the next level financially. Like it's, it's, it's a really big deal. And it usually takes some, some, some pretty serious uh, bad things happening to help them to decide to make a change. It usually takes some, some, some personal heartache, some personal problems, some embarrassment, some shame to help them to make the decision, I'm not gonna do that no more. But maybe it's not money for you. Maybe it's relationships. So in your mind, use that example instead. How many know someone who could use some different thinking regarding relationships? That's funny. I want to highlight the possibility that here we are on Wednesday night thinking about maybe there are some things that we could do better in our walk with God when it's in fact our thinking that's suffering. We can't change our actions because our thinking is missing some key understandings. There are some things that you wanna do better. There are some things that you would love to improve about your walk with God. 
And sometimes in our thinking, we decide, if I would just have a bit more discipline, and that's probably a good thought to have. Sometimes we think, oh, well, if, uh, if, if I could do this and this, you know, then, then that would help me to, to actually do the things that I should do. But a lot of the times, if you want motivation to have the discipline that you need to make those changes, there has to be a change in here before there can be a change in your actions. James chapter one. This is an example. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. James uses the words consider it. What kind of action is that? It's an action of thought. It's a decision, in fact. How's it even possible to consider something tragic as joy? That precious lady from Brother Wright's church found a way to decide on a different response. Different thinking equaled a different response. It comes from a place of right thinking. It's hard to count something all joy if you don't first believe Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Or, or maybe 1 Peter 5, 7, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. And if you read through the, the letters to the churches and as you read through the book of Acts and you read about the, uh, the, the, the apostles, it seems they realized a secret. And I call it a secret because they actually talk about it openly. But a lot of us, when we read some of these verses, we say to ourselves, man, Paul's hardcore. You know, he wrote some stuff that I just, you know, I just don't know if I can wrap my, my brain around. I don't know if I can do that. And it is hard to just do it if you haven't had that change first. But they realized the secret. Trial equals opportunity. Suffering equals honor. Death equals gain. Paul's thinking changed so much that he made this shocking statement in reference to his thorn in the flesh. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, that's pretty, more power to you, Paul. I mean, that's not, you know, I don't think about enjoyment, you know, when I 
suffer these kinds of things. His mindset changed so completely that he found pleasure in a whole list of things that would make a regular person wonder if God is even real. You might say, well, Paul was a minister and, and his difficulties came from serving Christ during that time when Christians were persecuted strongly. And the problems I have are, are most likely of my own design. My adversities don't have anything to do with serving God. Maybe. But James writes, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is, ne God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Check that out. God blesses us when we endure temptations that comes from our own desires, which can entice us and drag us away. Another translation of verse 12 says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Oh, you know, consider it pure joy. It's just a little bit more mind renewal. It's not something that can necessarily just happen the day of your conversion. I think sometimes that in myself, it's easy to sort of wonder, okay, well, when I got the Holy Ghost, didn't I just get the whole kit and caboodle? Didn't I just get it all? And yet, why does my mind yet think incorrectly about things? The history of Joseph, and I gotta go through this a little bit because it's just, it really, it really takes it. The history of Joseph in the book of Genesis is just a, a magnificent read. Here we have a young man who is obviously his father's favorite. Jacob makes his son Joseph a coat of many colors, but apparently doesn't make this kind of coat for his other brothers. Maybe they got like a one or two color coat. I don't know. I don't, I mean. So of course they didn't like that, you know, a little favoritism in the family. Of course, to make matters worse, Joseph is used by God at a young age to have dreams for telling the future. Without regard to how his dreams might make others feel, Joseph shares these dreams, and it makes his brothers even more jealous. This jealousy is burning, and one day they see him coming toward them, and they realize they have an opportunity to smack him around. No, they have an opportunity to kill the brother. I mean, this is some serious jealousy. So they snatch him and throw him in a pit. Judah, one of the brothers, has a bright idea when he sees some slave traders passing by to sell Joseph to them instead of killing him so the blood of their brother wouldn't be on their hands. From there, Joseph is sold to Potiphar, 
and God is with Joseph, and pretty soon Joseph is running everything in Potiphar's house. Meanwhile, the brothers, they go home, they lie to their dad, and they say, our brother Joseph is dead. They even mourned with their father, and they put on a big show for him. Can you imagine the turmoil that those brothers felt trying to deal with all of this? I mean, you can do some regrettable things when you're young and angry, but in the end, you can live long enough to regret those things. I mean, these brothers, in the time that Joseph was gone, eventually had children of their own. Some of those children died. And unless they had poor relationships with those children who died, the Bible doesn't really say, they experienced firsthand, the brothers did, experienced firsthand the sorrow of losing a child. What a mess they made for themselves. Back to Joseph. Joseph gets framed by Potiphar's wife, gets him sent to prison. Joseph is in prison for two years, starts running the place because the Lord is with him and gives him favor. He eventually interprets the dreams of the chief baker and the chief butler of Pharaoh, and, and these dreams come true. He tells them, please remember me when you get out. But of course, he's forgotten by the chief butler who is restored to duty. Chief Baker didn't make it. Until one day, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. The butler remembers Joseph at that day and calls him in. Joseph not only interprets the dream regarding a coming famine, but offers some sage advice as to how preparations could be made. Pharaoh wonders out loud if there is any man who could execute this plan except Joseph. And so Joseph, in an instant, goes from being in prison to being made second in command over all Egypt. And he prepares so much corn for the coming days of famine, and he's meticulous, but they lost count of everything they stored away. That's what the Bible says. He gets married, has a couple of boys, and after seven years of plenty, as the dream predicted, the famine starts. Jacob, the father, back home, sees that he and his son's families are running out of food, so he sends those brothers to Egypt because he heard there was corn there. These brothers were quite a, quite a bunch because they have managed to keep the story of their brother a secret all these years. That's impressive to me. I mean, 10 brothers, you know, just like holding it in. I mean, it must have had some kind of oath or something. I, I, I just don't know how that happens. I mean, there's always some sibling that just can't take it anymore in caves. <laughs> and all the other guys are like, come on. We would have gotten away with it. The brothers go to Egypt and are recognized by Joseph. But Joseph doesn't reveal himself. He starts talking with them about his little brother and father, and the brothers answer the questions, but they're scared because Joseph is accusing them of being spies. They just came to get some food. Finally, Joseph tells them that if they will bring the youngest brother to him, he will believe their story, 
And Joseph locks Simeon, one of the brothers, up as insurance that they'll come back. These brothers are just like, I can't even imagine. They're, they're, they're just, they're a mess. Listen to this turmoil. Chapter 42, verse 21. Speaking among themselves, they said, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to, not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked? But you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again, and he chose Simeon from among them and had him tied up right before their eyes. The brothers are somehow aware that after all these years, they have reached a point of judgment and say as much to each other. And that's the truth about sin. It doesn't just go away because you didn't talk about it, you didn't confess it. That sin just stays with you and stays with you. And the devil doesn't help because he just loves to, to go ahead and, and bring it up when you think maybe you might make a move about it. And it was no different here. They had to live all those years with the sound of their brother pleading for his life, crying out through time. This terrible thing they had done, this mess they made was coming back to haunt them. Their worst fears being realized. They pack up, they go home, and Joseph is just working them over. He puts the money they paid with, <laughs> with the money they paid for the food with, he puts it back in their bags and sends them home. The brothers minus Simeon get home and tell their father what happened, how the governor spoke roughly to them and that he wanted Benjamin to return. Jacob is shook, and even more so when they open all the bags of corn and find the money that they paid with. He says, as they emptied out their sacks, there in each man's sack was the bag of money he had paid for the grain. The brothers and their father were terrified when they saw the bags of money. Jacob exclaimed, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone, Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin too. That's just such a parent thing to say. Just stack them up, Dad. Stack up my sins. You may kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. This is what, this is what Reuben says. You may, kill, you may kill my two, then Reuben said to his father, you may kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. I'll be responsible for him, and I promise to bring him back. I mean, that's just kid stuff, man. <laughs> I promise. I'll give you all my toys. No, but it was serious. Just an adult language, right? But Jacob replied, my son will not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead, and he is all I have left. If anything should happen to him on your journey, you would send this grieving white-haired man to the, his grave. 
the pressure on these brothers is just growing and growing. They start to run out of food and, and the brothers convince Jacob finally to let them take their brother. Joseph is overwhelmed to see them when they arrive back in Egypt and for a second time has to step away to weep and cry. He has a meal with them, placing them by birth, oldest to youngest around the table, which makes them even more fearful because like, how does he know, you know, what order they were born in? Then he sends them on their way back home. He throws a wine cup in Benjamin's bag, unbeknownst to the brothers. They haven't got far down the road when he sends his steward out to get them. Of course, the brothers are scared, but adamant that they don't have the cup. In fact, they, these guys know how to make some promises, I tell you. They commit to killing the person <laughs> that stole it and then, the, and then the rest of them will go into servitude if that wine cup is found in any of their bags. And the steward, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking, but, you know, he just plays along. He, he agrees to this, <laughs> to this, to this uh, proclamation. So they all get down off their donkeys, grab their bags of corn, open them, only to find, to their horror, the cup in Benjamin's bag who they just committed to death. Of course they tore their clothes and got back on their donkeys and headed back to Egypt. And jo Joseph says to them when they get there, what is this that you have done? 44, 16, Judah answered, oh my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. My Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. Then Judah stepped forward and said, please, my Lord, let your servant say just one more word to you. Please do not be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. And Judah goes on this long, chapter long, pleading to Joseph not to take Benjamin, but to take one of them instead, because it will kill their father Jacob if Benjamin doesn't come home. Joseph can take it no longer. He weeps so loud that the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh hears it. He confesses that he is Joseph. 45.4 says, please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years. And there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. The brothers carried guilt from a terrible thing they had done. 
And that terrible thing somehow ended up being their redemption. Did they suffer from guilt? Yeah. Did they carry the weight of that guilt for years? Oh, yeah. Yet the Lord took what the brothers meant for bad and turned it into the redemption of their families because Joseph had prepared the storehouses against the day of famine. This played out again when the Jews crucified Jesus. The Jews meant it for evil. Yet it ended up being the thing that provided redemption for all mankind. Did the brothers sin? Yes. Did the Jews sin when they crucified Jesus? Yes. They were the ones who did it. They were the ones who did the terrible things. So in light of this, even if you are the one with the dark deeds, even if you are the one causing adversity for yourself, can it be used for something amazing? Maybe there is a way to think differently about it all. It's not a free pass to do whatever, but it is a chance to look at your situation, whether it's under your control or not, and consider it an opportunity for great joy as you seek after our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we could even learn to smile when adversity comes because we trust the one who controls the outcome. Even now, we all have adversities and trials in our lives. And I got news, more trials are coming. Some are a result of our own design and some are completely beyond your control. So should we look forward to that adversity? Maybe not. But maybe we could learn to say, bring it on. Paul, good old Paul, sure seemed to look forward to to it once his thinking changed. Therefore, I could understand if someone started to look forward to the things that draw us closer to Jesus. It's in the moments of deepest despair, of the deepest sorrows, that we find ourselves closest to the Lord. When our hearts, pains, frustrations almost overtake us, we suddenly find ourselves completely bathed in the peace of God, the love of God, and the mercy of God. Adversity forges us. And it's in those moments that desperation allows us to change. Why couldn't we smile at adversity? With just a little more mind renewal, we could think differently about many things. How was it that Paul and Peter could pen the words regarding the trials of faith as if they were some happy moment? some celebratory circumstance if they didn't somehow shift their thinking first, shift their perspective. Had they not realized that their trial was a benefit and their suffering was a benefit, they would have missed out on the great joy that was available 
in those moments. And some pretty cool miracles happened in those times too. Learning to appreciate adversity. Get this. It's actually a fear killer. You want to assassinate the anxiety in your life? Don't shy away when faced with a possible challenge. Instead of worry, raise your head. Turn in the direction of what you're afraid of and stare at the things that you fear. You might say something like this out loud. I don't really want that circumstance to come into my life, but if you're coming, bring it on. I have Jesus either way. For Joseph, amazing things took place. There's no telling what would happen when your faith is in Jesus Christ. Joy in knowing that your fear coming to pass is just an opportunity to lean on the rock. Even if destruction comes into my house, God's got me. He's gonna hold me close and tell me I'm his child and I'll be reminded of his promises. First Peter 1, 7, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold through, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. I'm not trying to be insensitive today to your suffering, to your heartache, to your pain, but to tell you that if you can recognize that you are being drawn by the Lord Jesus Christ to something greater, you might be able to embrace your circumstances and begin to move through it as you realize that the adverse situation is a blessing. If we can renew our mind, the Bible says we can be transformed.